In the late 1970s, a book was published that created a phenomenal following. In fact, uh, to this day, the following of other books turned into movies like uh, Harry Potter or Star Wars or even Lord of the Rings can't come close to matching the, the, the phenomenal wave of interest in this particular book authored by a man named Alex Haley. His book entitled Roots became a record-breaking series on television. More than 100 million plus people watched it. In Haley's loosely told family history, he begins with the story of Kunta Kinte, who seven generations earlier was kidnapped in Gambia and then uh, transported in 1767 to the province of Maryland and sold as a slave. Uh, the story follows Kunta Kinte and, his, uh, and, the, and the succeeding generations from which Alex Haley came. Uh, while doing his research, Haley actually went to the village of Jufure, I think it's pronounced, where Kinte uh, grew up and where it's in existence even to this day. He listened to a tribal historian tell the, the story of Kunta's capture and abduction from home. Haley also traced the records of the ship, the Lord Ligonier, uh, which he said carried his ancestor to America. Haley said that the most emotional moment of his life was on September 29, 1967, when he stood at the site in Annapolis, Maryland, where Kunta Kinte had arrived 200-some years earlier. Roots went on to, being, to be published in 37 languages, and uh, Haley won a special Pulitzer uh, Award in 1997. There are some people who doubt the historicity of Roots. In fact, uh, Alex Haley had to settle out of court on charges of plagiarizing from another African-American author. Uh, my point is not whether or not what he said was entirely original or true. My point is the response of people literally around the world. When Haley's book was aired in miniseries form, if you can imagine, 66% of this country tuned in to watch. Why? The incredible interest. Well, for starters, Roots emphasized that African Americans have a long history and not all of that history is lost, as was believed. The popularity of the series, though, crossed racial divides. Why? Because it, it spoke to the human heart's desire and longing to connect with the past. One uh, uh, author wrote of Haley's work. He said, this man's link to his past gave us all a sense of meaning. It's really a search for dignity and value, isn't it? Our search for roots is ultimately a search for the meaning of life. It's kind of interesting. Commenting on that particular book, R.C. Sproul, a theologian, wrote, and I quote him, if our past history tells us that we have emerged from the slime, that we are only grown-up germs, what difference does it make whether we are black germs or white germs, whether we are free germs or enslaved germs? Who cares? We can sing of the dignity of man. 
But unless that dignity is rooted in that which has intrinsic value, all our singing of human rights and dignity is so much whistling in the dark. If all we have is the present and no history, no roots, there is no dignity, only nothingness. No wonder mankind, regardless of race or nation or creed on every continent to this day asks the same questions. Who am I? Where did I come from? Do I really matter at all? It's no surprise to find out in my research this past week that genealogical studies have have literally skyrocketed in the past 30 years. In fact, I discovered that there are, on average, more than 1,000 hits on websites dealing with genealogical resources. Listen, around 1,300 hits every minute of every day. Tens of millions of people are involved in tracing their roots to discover where they came from. They're really wanting to know who they are and do they matter and where are they going. You know, one of the benefits, ladies and gentlemen, for the believers that we have been given the ultimate resource in genealogical studies, haven't we? We know the name of our oldest ancestor who got the whole family tree started. Our value, ladies and gentlemen, is indeed rooted in history, and some of it is revealed to us by God. But what absolutely tragic confusion abounds when, not only with our past, but our future, when this genealogical record is discarded, when this revelation from God is abandoned, what confusion abounds. I recently read an NPR transcript of an interview with a, with a singer, Mary Chapin Carpenter, who came out with a hit song about three or four years ago called Grand Central Station. She said in the interview, and I quote, she was inspired by an iron worker who had been on the scene when the towers fell at 9-11 or on 9-11. Uh, he worked at Ground Zero for days afterward, volunteering. The iron worker said that at the end of each day's shift... He felt inwardly compelled to go to the train station so that the souls of the victims could follow him. Carpenter said, and I quote her, he'd find himself going to Grand Central Station and standing on the platform and thinking whoever wanted to go home could catch the train home. And that was her inspiration. How tragic is that? How utterly void of meaning and hopeless is this? Listen, if our past becomes disconnected with a revelation of God, then not only is our past meaningless, our future is equally meaningless. We might all just be waiting for some kind of train to take our souls somewhere. We don't know where, but we'll sing about it. God has spoken. He has spoken in fact, he speaks to one of our old ancestors named Job, and he informs Job of the origins of 
roots. In fact, he takes Job on a verbal tour, doesn't he, of the origins of the universe and this planet and life itself. And here's the lesson. Here's, here's the main idea, and I'm going to give it to you very clearly. Our history has its roots in the hands of God, and our future has its hope in the hands of God. God, as he begins speaking to Job, as we've launched into this particular study here in chapter 38, he continues to reveal his creative mastery over the universe he created by asking Job unanswerable questions one after another, 77 of them in fact. Look at verse 18 where we left off. Have you understood the expanse of the earth? Tell me if you know this. In other words, Job, do you know the measurements of planet earth? He didn't, of course. We do. We have approximately 57 million square miles of landmass. We have about 134 million miles of water surface. Uh, the equatorial circumference of planet earth is, is 24,902 miles long. I looked all that up, trust me. The point God is making is not that these questions are unanswerable by Job and now we can answer them, some of them. Now what God is doing is bringing Job to the obvious recognition that not only does he not understand all of God's creative handiwork, he cannot control what little he understands. But God does. He and we cannot control the weather as he is going to reveal all sorts of weather conditions in these next few verses. Anybody in here able to control the rain? Well, bring it on. We need some, right? We're in the middle of an historic drought, and anxiety levels are rising as water levels are, are falling. Anybody here time the frost? Anybody here able to bring snow? Could you bring snow on the 24th of December? That'd be great. Can you make it melt by the next Monday? That'd be even better. Anybody? No, of course not. The only person to control the weather by his own power was Christ, who walked on top of the raging water and then allowed Peter momentarily to do the same, perhaps pulling back a curtain on what it will be like in our glorified state. He then speaks to the raging storm and he tells it to be quiet. And immediately the waves level out. Immediately the wind becomes calm. Whew. The text indicates just immediately. And of course, the disciples were left to wonder in fear and awe over Christ's power. What God will do in these verses, most of the remaining verses that we'll cover in chapter 38 is reveal his creation of origins and systems and, and history, but reveal along with that his control over the present conditions of even the weather. And he begins with light and darkness in verse 19. Job, where is the way to the dwelling of light and darkness? Where is its place that you may lead it to its territory, that you may discern the paths to its home. 
you were born way back then, weren't you? The number of your days has been long enough for you to see and know. Of course, he wouldn't know. But God here begins with light. One author wrote these interesting words, perhaps nothing in all of physics is more fascinating or more mysterious than this one thing we call light. Light is the single most important source of energy and heat on earth. Without light, life on earth would be impossible for very long. Virtually all the earthly mechanisms we depend on for the transfers of energy are derived ultimately from light. Wind, the water cycle, even the ocean waves would all cease if the earth were to remain in utter darkness for very long. The earth would quickly turn cold and all life would cease. Is it any wonder that, that the first, among the first creative orders or commands from God What we consider the starting point was when God said, let there be what? Light. Let there be light. And there was light. Genesis chapter 1 verse 3. Now the record of Genesis informs us that the light sources of sun, moon, and stars were not created until the fourth day. So the form of this particular light as God's early act of creation is unknown to us. Some postulate that it could have been some emanation from a specific God-ordained place. Um, I believe it was probably a disclosure of his own Shekinah glory, as he would do later on, uh, revealing just a portion of it, but it would be light. It wouldn't be difficult for us to believe that the one whose glory is described as pure light could command light to appear, and he could even be the source It's interesting, you go all the way to the end of human history as we know it. The book of Revelation tells us in heaven there will be no need for the sun. No need. Why? It doesn't have to shine because that city will be lit by the glory of God and the light of it will be the lamp which is the lamb. Revelation 21, 23. Job, do you know where the light that you see now comes from. It's interesting as we discover more about light and the harnessing of light, it opens up even more amazing possibilities with this thing God has created. Light gave you the ability to heat that cup of coffee in the microwave this morning. It allowed you to listen to the radio, perhaps on the way over here on those radio waves. It burns you at the beach It allows you to get checked out by the doctor through x-ray. It's what holds you up at the airport as you wait for your bags to go through. Those waves of light as they searched and see whether you forgot to take out your tube of toothpaste. Your eyeglasses change the direction of light so that you can see the images better because of that. How did this amazing thing called light come to be? The Bible says, God, in Isaiah 45, verse 7, God says, I form the light. I create darkness. I want you to notice a rather futuristic statement. Certainly much of this Job wouldn't understand, and science has been catching up in some ways to this text that certainly hasn't caught all the way up. But look at verse 24. Job would never have imagined the meaning behind this. Where is the way that the light 
is divided. What do you mean, the division of light? We now know the different colors of light are simply varying wavelengths of light in the spectrum. It was Isaac Newton in 1665 that discovered that the prism wasn't necessarily coloring the light. It was, it was dividing the light into its varying wavelengths. The prism would separate the colors of light because as the light passed through the prism, its direction was bent and differing, differing color waves moving at differing speeds came out of the prism, separated into a visible and wonderful display. And this is just the beginning of what God could mean in other texts. Think of what David said in Psalm chapter 65, verse 8, where he said, you make the dawn and the sunset sing for joy. Now, we would normally take this as simple poetic personification. The dawn and the sunset are visual. They aren't audible, or are they? It's interesting, in light of scientific discovery, light and heat and sound are vibrations, both wave and particle. It's possible, though not confirmed yet, that the mere existence of color may have a musical harmony which we have yet to hear. Wouldn't it be fascinating to discover one day and hear it for the first time, this symphony of light that is all around us? Job, you have no idea of this element of light, and certainly we are just learning a little bit here and there. God moves on to mention forms of water varied by weather conditions. Look at verse 22. Have you entered the storehouses of the snow? Have you seen the storehouses of the hail, which I reserve for the time of distress? Hail is often used as judgment. God could have been referring to the coming plague in Exodus chapter 9 where he sent hail to fall upon the land and devastate the land of Egypt. Perhaps this could be a reference to the coming judgment in Joshua chapter 10 verse 11 where God protected his people from the invading armies by sending hail to fall on them and kill many of them. Perhaps it's a reference to the climactic judgment of God on this planet during the tribulation period in Revelation 16 where, jo- where John writes that huge hailstones, and I quote, about 100 pounds each came down from heaven upon men. And men blasphemed God because of the plague of the hail because its plague was extremely severe. Revelation 16 verse 21. We don't know, but what God is saying is the storehouse of snow and hail is nothing less than the hand of God. The creation of water and his marvelous uh, adaptations that he has created throughout with his laws that govern the universe and behind those laws, he, the primary cause. Without water, without light, we wouldn't live. In fact, we wouldn't exist. I found one scientist who said these interesting words about water. He said the human body has been called a water machine designed primarily to run on water and minerals. Listen to this. In just the last 10 years, this is a current article written in this year, just in the last 10 years, medical science has begun to focus more on the healing abilities of our body and its relationship to water. And why not? The human body is made up of over 70% water. Our blood is more than 80% water. Our brain is more than 75% 
water. I had a physiologist come up to me and he said, you know that thing you said about our brains being 75% water? And I thought, oh no, did I get it wrong? He said, you're exactly right. He said, I've spent decades teaching on the brain. And then he began to weep and he said, we have yet to begin to understand this marvelous creation of God. They have discovered that the function of every cell in our body is controlled by electrical signals sent through our nervous system from the brain. Listen, our nerves in reality are an elaborate system of tiny waterways. Job, do you understand water in all its varied forms and wherever it shows up? No. How about snow? Where cold temperatures turn its molecules into crystals that are magnificent. Have you ever seen pictures of snowflakes magnified? The symmetry and the brilliant designs of each snowflake is a marvel. Why not just make them all look alike? Because God is so creative. That's why. What did Job understand when he said of water in chapter 28 that God made the weight of the wind. Wind doesn't have weight. Well, we know today, in fact, we have an entire science of water known as hydrology, which studies the occurrence and behavior of water. We now know that the global weight of air, and it must be with water in critical relationship to each other in order to maintain life on earth. In fact, I read this, if, if the weights of either air or water on and around this planet were much different than they are, life would cease as we know it. This passage where Job talks about the weight of the air informs us that air and wind have Wait, even though he had no idea. We know it today. In fact, it would be confirmed some 4,000 years after Job wrote those words. And now, the study of air and its weight has developed into a science we now know as aerodynamics. It provides the foundation for aerospace and so many things. God asks Job in chapter 38. Look at verse 28. Does the rain have a father? Who has begotten the drops of dew? Look back up at verse 26. Who brings rain on a land without people, on a desert without a man in it, to satisfy the waste and desolate land and to make the seeds of grass to sprout? Uh, Job, do you understand the weight of air and how it eventually has so much water in it that it rains. He might have known certain things. And we're learning, in fact, all the time. Where does rain come from? We know that water is converted by solar energy into into vapor, which is lighter than air. So it rises and then condenses around little particles of, of dirt or dust and salt. I have learned that those who study this aren't exactly sure how, but water droplets bind with other water droplets to form large drops, which eventually become so large and heavy that they fall as either rain or hail or snow, depending on the temperature. Look at what God says to Job in verse 37. 
Who can count the clouds by wisdom? In other words, if the weight has to be perfectly balanced, God would know even the number of clouds. Read on. Who tips the water jars of the heavens? Look at this. When the dust hardens into a mass and the clods stick together. He's describing the making of rain. He's delivering truth. It's going to take centuries for us to discover. There's more mystery, however, in rain than we even understand today. One scientist asked this. A believing scientist said this. What causes those small droplets to join with other droplets and become large enough to fall? Some clouds fall, or literally rain. Others grow dark and turbulent and heavy, but they don't produce rain. Job gives the answer, which only the believer will appreciate. In fact, in Job chapter 28, verse 26, he says it this way, God made a decree for the rain and a way for the lightning of the thunder. And there's a clue in there that now we can read about. In other words, God makes it rain by the use of lightning. Henry Morris writes this, with the right combination of air turbulence and clouds. And I'm so sorry I'm going to have to read all this because I don't have a clue what I'm talking about. So I've got to read all these wonderful quotes by these scientists. Follow this. This is a wonderful, wonderful truth. With the right combination of air turbulence and clouds, complex forces generate an electrical field that produces lightning discharges. And these violent electrical currents in an energy exchange we do not yet fully understand, listen, causes the small water droplets to bind with others to form larger drops that then become too heavy to remain in the clouds but fall. Lightning plays a role. Now, now listen to this. God said this centuries ago to Job. In fact, you can look back at verse 25 and in chapter 38. Again, who has cleft a channel for the flood or a way for the thunderbolt, literally the lightning of thunder, note this, to cause it to rain. Job, the order of my handiwork that you don't fully understand, and you know what? In the 21st century, we don't fully understand it, but I'm telling you what's going on here. That water moves from vapor, lightning affects it, forms droplets, and we get rain, and all we can do is basically study what God has decreed. I love the way the message paraphrases this particular paragraph. Job, have you ever traveled to where snow is made? Have you seen the vault where hail is stockpiled? The arsenals of hail and snow that I keep in readiness for times of trouble and battle and war. Can you find your way to where lightning is launched to the place which the wind blows? Who do you suppose carves canyons out? for the runoff of rain and charts the route of thunderstorms. It brings water to unvisited fields, deserts no one ever lays eyes on, drenching the useless wastelands so they're carpeted with wildflowers and grass. Who do you think is the, the father of rain and dew? 
ice and frost. You don't for a minute imagine these marvels of weather just happen, do you? The theme of this display was intended to reveal to Job that God not only created everything in its marvelous ways and systems, but he controls everything. He has established the laws of hydrology, which water the earth and make life possible, which means he has timed in his providence our own little drought. He knows the levels of water, how much will come, and when it will. David McKenna, the former president of Asbury Theological Seminary, recalled in his commentary on Job, a television show he was watching where a panel of economists were answering questions from the moderator. And the last question that came in that they answered was this one. What is the greatest influence over world economies. The economists responded unanimously, the weather, which was a surprising answer. But they knew. In fact, he goes on to say, after all our efforts to manage money and stock markets in order to control the economy, the honest confession of these experts is that the weather which happens to be a factor completely out of human control, determines bull markets and bear markets, prosperity and depression, deficits and surpluses. Imagine that. The weather, this marvelous engine created by God, which brings both blessing and sorrow, joy and suffering, increase and loss, all of it fulfills the plan and purposes of God, but just as we cannot understand the lightning, we don't understand the hand behind the lightning. And this was part of the point. And let me say it again, it was, it, it was not irony that God would come to this grieving, suffering man and speak out of a whirlwind and make references to lightning. It was lightning killed all his sheep and his employees. It was a whirlwind that that toppled the house and killed his ten children. Do you think Job picked up on this? Absolutely. But by being given revelation about God's creation and control of nature, Job was brought to a deeper level of trust in God's nature. God speaks, and it is done. And our answer is not in what is done. Our answer is in who it is that speaks. Our roots ultimately go back to the creative power and providence of God. The leper came to Jesus Christ and he was riddled with that fatal disease, ostracized from his family and the temple. And he said those wonderful words of 
faith. Lord, if you are willing, you can make me clean. In other words, just say it. And Jesus Christ said, I'm willing. And the man was clean. Luke chapter 5. The creator stood at the tomb of Lazarus. And he said, Lazarus, come forth. And Lazarus came back to life. He spoke. And his command reveals his control over life itself. The creator of life hung on a cross. This final sacrifice for the sins of the whole world, 1 John 2, 2, he he hung there and at noon, the scriptures record, the sky went dark. Dark. The light of the sun was obscured. The text indicates it's it's as if it disappeared, as if a curtain had been drawn in front of it no longer visible. All nature seemed to hide for three hours as the dreadful judgment against its creator fell from God the Father. And Jesus Christ cried out, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? This is the anguish of God, the man who utters the same question we utter, which is why. And all creation seemed to join in and agonize with him. An earthquake shook the planet and rocks literally split open as if they ripped apart in pain. And when he cried, it is finished and died, it's interesting to me, the skies grew bright again. Around three o'clock in the afternoon after his death, the clouds and or the darkness lifted The wrath of God was satisfied, demonstrated even in the visual effects of of nature. It's as if then at 3 o'clock nature could come out of hiding and lift its head and rejoice that the debt of sin had been paid in full. Job, can you do that? Can any of us? No. And that's the point. I, the creator, who commands everything, I have everything under my command. One more visual demonstration. Look at verse 31. Can you bind the chains of Pleiades or loose the cords of Orion? Can, can you lead forth a constellation in its season? Guide the bear with her satellites? Do you know the ordinances of the heavens, the way I've created it to work, as they fix their rule over the earth? Can can you figure that out, Job? I want you to look beyond the atmosphere. I want you to look beyond the snow and the hail and the rain and the clouds and, and the wind. And I want you to just keep looking out and looking up. Do you understand what little you know about the universe? And the constellations, what do you know about Pleiades and Orion? Today, and maybe then, we're not sure how much you knew, but Pleiades would be the constellation that belongs to the spring and Orion the winter. Some believe that God is asking Job effectively, can you change the seasons? Can you manipulate the weather? Can you bring on spring? 
Can you delay winter? Do you have that power? And of course, Job would answer no. What's fascinating, though, is these descriptive phrases. While the Bible is not a handbook on astronomy, whenever it speaks to the, to the subject, it speaks without error and with precision. Consider this fact, several facts. Consider the fact that the ancients believed that the moon was larger than the sun. Just natural observation would indicate that. It's closer, it seems larger. How did Moses know that the sun was larger than the moon? For he would write it this way, as he delivered the news of creation, God speaking through him, the greater light God ordained to rule the day and the lesser light, the smaller light to rule the night. How did he know? He didn't. But God's Spirit, breathing through him his infallible word, recorded the truth. And today, science having caught up at some point with this record of creation, knows that the sun could gobble up six million moons. What of these ordinances in the heavens? What do you know about the sun? Moses could have erred. He could have referred to the sun as the greatest object in the sky. He didn't say that. He said it was the greatest light in reference to the earth. And now we know, not only is that true, but so much more, we now know that the star Antares, for example, is so large that it could hold 64 million suns. That's, that's big. Can you imagine that? But there is another constellation I read about which includes the star Epsilon, which is 27 billion times bigger than the sun. 27 billion times? And what are the comparison between the earth and sun? If the sun were a basketball, the earth would be the size of the head of a pin. Just a speck. Who are we? Where did we come from? Do we matter? David said, when I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, this is just finger work, just the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have ordained, what is man that you are mindful of him? Who are we that you would take thought of us? It's the amazing thing. For those of us who believe we look out at the stars, and I recommend you do it perhaps tonight. Teddy Roosevelt, I read, used to take guests that visited the White House, out on the White House lawn. Sometimes you'd have them lie down, look up at the stars. You ever done that? Not at the White House lawn, but in your own lawn. Have you ever done that? Just lay down and just look up. The longer you look, the more you see. Well, he would do that. He'd have his his guests lay down on the White House lawn and look, just stare. And after a while, he'd get up and he'd brush himself off and he'd say, well, I believe we're small enough. Let's retire to bed. Now, the one who breathed the stars and planets into being by the word of his mouth, Psalm 33, this transcendent Lord of the universe condescended to become a human being, robed himself in flesh, fully man yet fully God. He came to our little blue speck 
having taken on flesh now, we can and will see him and worship him and serve him and reign with him as his redeemed bride. For he will soon have us with him inhabiting the new heavens and the new earth dwelling in the holy city reigning, listen, with him over the universe. That's who we are. That's where we've come from. Him. And that's where we're going. And we do matter to him. Father, thank you for communicating to us in this way. We can only begin to explore the incredible magnificence of your creation. Father, I want to thank you today for everyone in this audience who's a scientist, who studies the systems of our planet, the makings even of the human body. Those who work harnessing, manipulating your magnificent creation. I pray they would leave here with a greater sense of their place as ambassadors of you in these worlds revealing what can only be fully and finally explained as having its origin in you. I pray that all of us, Father, will leave with a sense, a proper sense of humility. Who are we but a sense of destiny? All who we are in you and because of you. We thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.